This episode of our This Week in XR podcast is sponsored by Zapper. Zapper is one of the world's leading XR companies. Over the past 12 years, they've won numerous awards for memorable campaigns. They've democratized AR by making tools and SDKs that anyone can use. And they created Zapbox, the world's most affordable mixed reality headset. Most recently, Zapper worked with Unilever to create an enhanced QR code called Accessible QR, which enables packaged goods to speak to the blind and partially sighted. If you're thinking XR, give the team at Zapper a call or visit Zapper.com to see how they can help you on your XR journey. Good morning, everybody. I'm Charlie Fink with Ted Chilowitz and Roni Abovitz for This Week in XR. It's Friday, October 27th. We have a fantastic guest coming up, Albie Gluten, who is a legendary music producer and uh, is now Senior Fellow of Technology Initiatives at Intertrust Technologies. Uh, I talked to him recently for a story I was writing on AI and music, and he's got quite a lot to say about that, intellectual property rights. And of course, we're going to have to grill him on his storied career, both as a music executive and as a producer, and I guess musician and composer himself. There, This is one of those guys where there's nothing Albie doesn't do. Charlie Roney and I are very, that's a good get, Charlie. We are very excited to tell you. He is truly a living legend. When when our listeners hear what he's accomplished and what he's done that has uh, sort of permeated through popular culture for many generations, it'll be a very interesting show today. We're yeah, excited. I think, right up my alley. I'm going to. I know. Out. You're going to have like a nerd out kind Big of thing. Time. I I Whenever I book somebody like Albie, I'm like, oh, Roni, you like this. This yeah, is yeah. Roni. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm surrounded by guitars and recording equipment. You can't see it because the Well, I mean, world, so but... me too. It's funny, you know, the three of us hard, had, don't see each other in person enough to ever spend any of that time jamming. Ted and I have never laid it down. No. I probably could come over there, Ted, and lay down some rhythm for you Absolutely. so you can... All right, so let's get on to the show. It's not, I guess... Uh, it's kind of a good news week. I don't know. It's they all start to blend together, guys. Um, <laughs> the uh, the big news this week, of course, to uh, Rody, is that uh, your successor at Magic Leap, Peggy Johnson of Qualcomm and of Microsoft fame, uh, has left the company in the hands of uh, a fellow named Ross Rosenberg. Do you know Ross? I do not. Um... I do not know Ross. What I do know is that uh, he went to Wharton with some friends of mine. Uh, so after the announcement was made, I got a couple of shout outs from 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 people I know who were like, oh, I went to school with, with Ross or uh, they were like Wharton people. So I guess there was like a Wharton, just like there's a Harvard Business School network, I guess there's a Wharton network. Um, it's an interesting choice because um, I think he's got a just like a solid business operations background. Uh, but he's new to this space. Um, Ted, any thoughts on this? Um, Did were you surprised? I, I was surprised. Uh, mm, you know, I was trying to synthesize something that would be valuable for our listeners. I was not surprised. Um, I think the the space is struggling with finding scale and maybe the thing that's most relevant is something that you and I talked about Charlie a couple days ago and and Roni this will be interesting for you to reflect on in terms and you know because you and I've talked about this too in terms of a startup entity that is working in a new space trying to carve out a new form of usability for technology and and a new way for us to engage with screens um, I think the challenge is the investor pressure and push to grow too fast as opposed to allow things to grow organically and find the opportunities where they are at the scale that makes sense. When you try and force that scale into existence, it very often topples over on itself because you can't afford all of the the the, the scale that you built into the, the perception of what the business might be. Uh, and what very often then happens is the folks at the top of the food chain can hold it together for only so long before it's time to sort of bring in someone else that can attempt the same thing, right? And it, and it happens a number of times until that entity realizes that they should have been smaller all along for a much longer period of time until that growth moment happens, until that hockey stick moment happens organically and not 
to try and force it into into existence. That's maybe my perspective perspective on it. Charlie, let me give a I wouldn't call it a rebuttal, but like a compliment to what Ted's saying. Um, I think smallness is relative here. I, I, I personally believe there's a certain critical mass of investment to be worthwhile players in such a complicated tech space as XR spatial computing. And Apple and Meta are trying to say that if you're not spending two to four billion a quarter, you can't play. And I think what Magic League was trying to do is say that, yes, you could, you need billions of dollars over a decade, but you can play at the level of the big guys and not need to spend two or three billion a quarter. That being said, uh, what, what Ted said about the guys at the top, the people at the top, you have to be able to go long and have the patience to go long. Um, at least Mark and Meta showing the patience that it will take through the end of this decade. And it'll be the quest three and then the quest four and the quest five and the blah, blah, blah. And just keep going and going and going. Cause he'll know he'll eventually get there. He's seen enough that he knows he'll get there. And he has the patience and vision at Meta with a startup. That vision is not at the top making investment decisions. Um, so you have to constantly try to show the, the, like the kind of short-term stuff, which is, more sparse, right? Like Ted and, and, and Charlie, you guys know this, is more sparse in the beginning. And you just have to really have the stomach to go for the long vision and a belief that this is a very big market, right? Yeah. But I think Apple entering the space has, has created uh, another perception that the market's going to be gigantic and you got two big players going at it. So on one level, I think what's happened with, uh, this is my view from outside Magic Leap, I'm not, I'm not with the company anymore. Um, but from the outside, I think what you're seeing is that there's a belief that the market is right. Uh, they have really good technology, uh, but how do you operationalize commercial success in the midterm so you're there for the long-term? That, that's what I think this represents. Like, could this new person be more operational on like, commercialization on the, on the near-term opportunities, right? Uh, where, whereas I think someone like Meta wants to make money along the way, but I think Mark just has the stomach and he knows that in the 2030s, it's going to be gigantic, really, really, really big. And he's investing all the way to go there, right? And I think that's the full commitment. Question is, does Tim Cook have the stomach to go all the way there? It's not super clear. I think yeah. Mark does. Uh, and the investors in Magic Leap have the fortitude to go the distance to win this race. Because the winners are going to have a massive outcome. But it's a long, long, long race across the desert. I don't know if that makes sense to our listeners, but that's how I see it. So here's a here's an interesting perspective on screens of another age, Roni. I'm curious how you would think about this. If you go back in time and look at companies like Sylvania, RCA, Zenith, as the the owners of a certain space and a certain growth engine, and the where are they now? Right, they were big, important companies for for a period of time. Look at Polaroid. Look at Kodak. Uh, and then look, look at, at IBM for gosh. Look at IBM, but IBM AT &T. has evolved, right? Yeah. AT and T. Yeah, but AT and T and IBM made an evolutionary choice, right? The Sylvanias and Zenus of the world, ultimately, as technology moved through many, many, many cycles, it was the Samsungs and the uh, the LGs and Sony to to a certain extent that held the water, right? So, do we think that in the long, long run, is Meta Sylvania? Or is Meta, Meta Samsung? And it's an interesting, you know, unknown answer, even, even at Meta's scale and, and Meta's level of profitability and, and valuation, you know? So uh, interesting segue. We'll leave Magic Leap behind because sort of a developing story, I yeah, would yeah. say. Um, I think that their ultimate fate is going to be acquisition uh, in success. Uh, and I certainly could see a Google, I guess they've already talked to Meta, so, uh, you know, the, the sharks seem to be aware of the bait in the water. Perfect. So that's my, that's my perspective from a million feet away. Uh, so it uh, was earnings week for big tech. Uh, and we had our worst quarter in, I guess, almost a year. Uh, it was, I mean, i sorry, worst week in a year. Most of them are down 5 to 10%. So buying opportunity if you're playing roulette. Uh, but Microsoft's cloud business benefiting tremendously from their AI business. They are probably their own biggest customer. Uh, they're giving a lot of AI computing away on Bing. I've been using it and it's nice. I have to say, as is BART, both of them proving to be tremendously useful and uh, an interesting, I wouldn't say replacement for, but complement to search. Uh, so uh, 
that's what happened this week. But let's focus in on Meta because that was the segue. Uh, they lost $3.7 billion last quarter. Um, although we should reflect on, you know, they were headed this time last year, they were taking a swan dive into an empty pool, right? They had been kneecapped by Apple, uh, which is still going on at, because of Apple's new privacy rules. And you have to approve every little piece of information that leaves your profile and goes back to the platform. So, uh, and of course I go decline, 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 decline. And some of these companies like Meta, I don't trust them. I don't trust their algorithm. I don't trust their, they get they're, by the way, they're now calling the algorithms that run the news feeds AI. Mm-hmm. So this is the moment of transition, the way XR consultants have now become AI consultants. <laughs> uh, algorithms have become AI. Right. And anybody raising money for any kind of a startup has got to call it an AI something. So it's a little bit receding back to metaverse madness. You can start to feel the bubble forming uh, around you just uh, and and of course, you know, originally justified by people's uh, excitement at discovery. But now it has to come back down to earth. And, you know, these things are going to take their time changing our lives forever Uh, as much as, you know, it it's sort of a snap of the fingers when you see the internet for the first time in the mosaic browser it's still like 25 years before there's something like the world we know now with with mobile internet and and everything else so uh meta took a beating last quarter they didn't sell any quest twos because everybody was waiting for the quest three uh hopefully they'll do a little digging out of that pile uh as uh despite my own mixed feelings about the quest uh, in my review of it, it got rave reviews from almost all the tech reporters uh, I respect in this space. So uh, maybe <clears throat> maybe it will not have the cynical outcome I was uh, predicting. I mean, Charlie, after, you know, our friend Matthew Balls estimated a few months ago, 59 billion. And if their run rate is three to four billion a quarter, we're now well over 60 billion. You would hope that that amount of capital would produce something. That's okay. And I think the Quest 3 is the result of more than $60 billion of funding. So um, I think we all expected more, but it does show you if you fire enough money at an array of problems with almost 20,000 people, you're eventually going to get something like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think they're actually having some success with the audio smart glasses. And I think that camera uh, on the Ray-Bans may end up being more of a sensor. Uh, and so I think the race for uh, these co-pilots, personal assistants, whatever you want to call them, sort of uh, conversational AIs that act as sort of a, well, I get a co-pilot through your day. It knows you. It's taking notes on everything. At the end of the day, it could give you a to-do list of what, and and also help you scratch off what you've accomplished. So it could start to be the Siri of the Martin Scorsese TV commercials. And the company that owns that, it's going to be worth a zillion dollars. Um, not just the depth of information, but the quality of information that it could uh, deliver to us on demand is just really exciting to think about. And this has been going on for a long time. There was Bixby, there was, yeah. you know, everybody's kind of been circling around this, but at this point for over 10 years. Uh, but now this shit is getting real. Also, the by the way, the... Um, the uh, the humane AI pin is coming out in two weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's yeah, I mean, been... ultimately, this this becomes a study on humanity and humanity's choices, right? And how we, as humans, choose to integrate forms of technology into our lives. You know, I think you're right, Charlie, that the goal set of those high-res cameras on the Ray-Ban glasses are for contextual use case as you're walking around the world. What is this? Define this. Tell me where to head with this. What's inside that building? Am I heading in the right place? which people use mobile phones and look down at their, you know, at their phone all the time and run into each other on big city streets uh, or almost run into each other. So we have that form of humanity. It's, it's still just an open question of uh, what is that adoption curve and what do people in different cultures, you know, both Western and Eastern really want to do. And a lot of this does get driven uh, a lot out of Asia, you know, a lot out of China and, and other, other regions other than the United States and, and Canada and the West. So. We tend to be the followers in this in this stage. Um, true that. 
we should we <laughs> shall see what happens but i've i've always thought that that audio was underutilized the glasses mm -hmm. could be a lot more useful if they were connected to an app that had more power and so now we're talking about really connecting you to the voice-driven operating system uh, for everything. So, uh, you know, and again, we're going to learn how to talk to AI. We still yeah. don't know, you know, especially average people don't know what it can do and how to get it to do things. But, you know, the idea that you could look into your refrigerator uh, and get recipe suggestions simultaneously uh, is kind of an amazing idea. And I think a metaphor for everything. It'll be a really interesting CES this year. It'll be interesting to yeah. see how CES permeates this. Okay, my my prediction technology. is that it's going to be like the metaverse and just a load of bullshit that people drop on you in every booth. We're an AI this, we use AI for that. We integrate chat GPT, we integrate whatever AI thing they can call it, an algorithm, a, a newsfeed. It's all AI. Mm. But Charlie let, me, Charlie, let me throw this out. Um, this is something I threw out uh, when we put out the first Magic Leap one in 2018, and I firmly believe it's true, all the dust settles, all the you know, all the mishigas happens. Human-centered AI, where um, why you wear XR, uh, the alt Pickle, what's the killer app for for XR? It's going to be AI, an AI that knows you, that knows the world, that simultaneously knows you and the world at the same moment, knows the context of you and that world at the same moment. When that's done right, you will not take those things off. Um, and and it was actually one of the things when we were when we were uh, talking to early Magic League investors, the idea that, you know, when I put on my glasses, I could see, right? Without my glasses, I have blurry vision. Imagine you put on your twenty thirty something. Uh, you know, this is for all of our listeners, and now your IQ has gone up by ten thousand. Your capabilities <laughs> have been amplified. Your ability to know and understand and see is so much enhanced because it's no longer you normal, right? It's like like without glasses, like if, if you need glasses, you, it, the world is fuzzy and blurry. So this enhanced capability, which no one has perfected yet, right? These are conceptual things. But I think the reason uh, Graham Devine, who was one of our brilliant early people at Magic Leap, said, "What would I? What would I need to go back to pick up my 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 glasses at home one day?" Right. Like if you leave your iPhone yes. at home, would you yes. drive five miles back yeah. and pick it? Yes, you would. Yes. Even if you're going to be late for work. Absolutely. When when these things are small and light and do what I just said, you will not leave the house without them. You will drive back to get them up because they have amplified your cognitive capability, your understanding of the world by tens of thousands, millions of times. And everyone around you in the workplace will also have that. And you won't be able to function or have a job or be in society in the modern world without it. That's that when that moment happens, and my guess is that's late this decade when it all comes together, the AI capabilities and the and the smallness of the device, that's when this thing takes off and a billion people have it every day. It's not going to be games and all that other stuff is there. But this cognitive enhancement so that you can function in a world surrounded by AI and a very powerful sensing world, and you just like know things and you take it off and suddenly you're human IQ again. You know, you're gonna have an IQ. 1000 and then you go back to iq of 120 that won't work anymore well and this is this is not a stretch what you're talking about roni that thesis because we've already seen it with the pocket computer right i mean it is proven the mobile smartphone fully synthesized yeah. proven conceptual idea that that is you know the accelerator to the world's knowledge we have it in our pocket it attaches to the grid in the sky but it's, but it's still the form factor of here the only open question is are we ready for another form factor on a daily basis a lot of theorists a lot of people investing a lot of money believe it but there's yet to be it's, that provability it, it's going to be sound it has to be sound it's something it's not, we're it's already it's, doing it's got to be both it's got to be vision and sound together and virtual touch it's got to be your senses together right i think the piecemealing of it it's got to be that we are both right we see and hear together this is the cognitive enhancement needs our senses combined right uh, this is something we could talk about for eight days, um, but but I think it's sound alone is a step. Vision alone is a step. Sound and vision blended well with this cognitive enhancement. That's the home run. That's the kill. At the end of the day, when 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 that's dialed. By the way, the dialing of that in right, the right form factor, the battery lasts, the field of view, the AI pieces are right, the senses are right. This is like why this is going to be another 
50 to 100 billion of investment. I hate to say that out loud, but that's what it's going to take to get there. Uh, all companies, supply chain included. But when you get there, that's the end of the phone. Because the phone is a limited way to get that. And this will be an unlimited way to get that sensing, the vision, the sound, all of it. Um, so that's the bet. And hopefully more than one company gets there, right? Because if only one company gets there, they're going to have like 90% of the market and you're going to have some kind of monarchy and that would suck. Oh gosh, Roni, everybody is working on this. I mean, the stakes are so huge. Yeah. Well, you that's can't... Apple's bet, right? I mean, Apple is making a 20-year bet that everything that Roni said is a logical conclusion to the next step of where the compute engine and the visual audio engine goes. Uh, so you're seeing the first level of their first foray into it. You know that there are multiple divisions working on multiple form factors, multiple use cases. Uh, even, even with their stock down a little bit, they have effectively unlimited resources to drive towards a long-term proof point, a long-term vision as it were. And, you know, no surprise, they call it vision. So um, Apple stock is doing fine. I mean, they had a bad week. Yeah. I mean, it's we'll a, the, the whole NASDAQ is is recovering. Some of the small ones will take much longer, but, you know, the, the economy is still running pretty hot. So, yeah. well, you have, uh, a, you have a, a crazy war going on that's has a global and the economy oh, yeah. is trying to figure out what that means. You know, yeah. we're not going to go into it here, but like, no. I think we can't, you know, that's that's a backdrop to everyone's repositioning of their portfolios. Well, let me also say that, um, you know, war is, I hate to say this, but wars generally, assuming they don't go nuclear, are actually good for the economy because Economic they, engines, yeah. Yeah, so uh, anyway, it's horrible I, 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 to I, I, say it. It's horrible to say it. From that, like, I, it's true, but I think we should all hate that that's true. No, I, a thousand percent. Uh-huh, of course. Of course. Um the uh, couple of other things that we're vamping because Albie's having trouble getting into the Zoom. So I do want to mention along the lines of the war, here comes one of our favorite ghouls, Peter Thiel, who's investing $68 million in a company called Quantum Systems Euro, and they make drones. 68 like, million like, or billion? Billion. Million. Million. Million? million. Sixty-eight million. million. They're making they drones. Talking? This is an opportunistic company that's going to make a billion drones and sell them for what are they twenty thousand dollars each. <laughs> Charlie Quantum, what? It, it's called Quantum Systems Euro, hmm. and he's making the. It looks like he's making the investment just by himself. He just stroked a check uh, because in the middle of a Ukraine war that doesn't look like it's ending soon, it looks like drones are the new artillery pieces. Well, the other the other cat that's involved in that same sector is our friend Palmer Lucky, who's involved in the drug. yeah Anduril, which is now worth billions of dollars and has raked in hundreds of millions from the big private equity funds that love defense plays. Yeah. Uh, so also involving drones, but also uh, remote monitoring. Now it's integrating AI. It's like you know that video where drones. Well, you know Peter Thiel you. is a driving force behind a theory of Anduril more than Palmer. Yes. Um, Palmer's like the spokesperson, I guess, but, but Peter's theory, and this is an interesting one for our, our listeners by massively investing in defense tech in fast moving players, he thought he could jump past the existing primes and pass the Pentagon and not need Pentagon grants and make all the technology and show them things they would, that would take them five, 10 years to do very quickly. Right. And it turns out that theory has been correct. Uh, so they were sort of betting on the emergence of all these like new technical innovations. And if you look closely at the war in Ukraine, one thing that blew my mind was that the innovation in drone warfare is changing every couple of weeks. You know, we talk about agile design and engineering. All of us are agile. Many of our listeners are agile engineers or know people who are. It's changing almost on a weekly basis, almost on a daily basis. So what they thought coming into that Ukraine-Russian war and what's going on, the electronics and software and countermeasures on drones is so rapidly changing, it's insane. That's that's the other piece, Charlie, we're saying that the, the war drives the economy. It's also changing the innovation. Like World War II changed aviation. Right. Like well, everybody fights. Everybody in these things. Like five decades. Of, in these of, things, in everybody, everybody fights the last war uh, until until they can't. Uh, and I think that's what's happening in drones. That's what the rush is like, you know, for a guy like Thiel to be like, look, I'm just writing you a check, get going. Uh, so 
uh, anyway, listen, we're having trouble getting Albie in. I want to get to the interview. Uh, I think we did the news pretty completely. By the way, you like my T-shirt today. I have to wear it. I spent $25 and I only wear it on the podcast. <laughs> well, well All we right. have a minute to talk about what happened to that fight. Oh, that's, yeah, that's a long story, but it ain't happening. As it turns out, Elon was just pranking Zuck. <laughs> By the way, the uh, the book for you guys to read, if you haven't read it, we could have mentioned this publicly too, is a book called The Contrarian, which is the unauthorized Peter Thiel biography. It's a really, really good, very insightful book about his his MO, his chemistry. Yeah, well, I mean, he's, he, his level of influence has been tremendous. But like I said, not a nice guy and not interested in anybody thinking of him in that way. <laughs> He's the contrarian. Yeah, he certainly is. Well, it's interesting. Most people want to be loved. He doesn't care. Yeah. I mean, that that makes him different that's, to yeah, begin with. Yeah. Well, you if you read the, the Mark Andreessen um, manifesto, he talks about love, money and power. And he says love doesn't scale mm. and power causes conflict. So they're just focusing on the scaling of money, right? So if you think about the decision they made, they don't care about the love part. It's like the money scales. Yeah, the economic just engine techno. is just the, yeah. That's what I mean, that's, I think that's why it takes a certain sort of person to succeed as an entrepreneur, particularly in tech. Well, I, I don't think you have to be that way, but um, if you are that way, you might be able to have faster financial success, but then you got to look at how do we measure as a society? Is it only financial success that matters or is it the lasting positive impact you've had? Like the people we love in tech over, over a century, were they only financial success or do they do things that had lasting reverberating impact on the world that were not destructive? You, you know who had lasting impact? And I'm reading an interesting good, book good now. Good lasting impact. Uh, I'm reading an interesting book now called Chip War, and it's the story of the microprocessor and how we went from, you know, the 1950s cathode ray tubes, like I have in the amplifier for my Fender Junior, uh, or whether or not it's uh, something that really changed the world. I mean, transistors uh, and these ultimately, you know, circuit boards that are the size of your thumbnail. Uh, is something you know well, Roni, and those guys are all unsung heroes. You know, I mean, the guy who founded Intel, Andy Grove, guy has an amazing bio, was a real sort of World War II egghead who suffered terribly during the war, um, came to the United States and uh, became a great scientist before he started Intel and, and you know, became a celebrity CEO for a hot minute back in the 90s. Um, you know, he's a guy who really changed the world and did it in a way that most people didn't know or realize. Now it's, you know, 50 years later and people like me and historians are sort of looking back and saying, what the hell just happened? And if you're the kind of person who says that, you know, then the uh, invention of the transistor is every bit as dramatic as the invention of Android. It's more. Oh, right, yeah. Like, like the, yeah, the transistor more. is fundamental. Android is, is <laughs> a higher order. Right, right. No, no, you're right. It's the enabling technology like electricity. I wish we had more of that, right? Where is the, the Thomas Edison level fundamental bringing of something new to the world versus like this kind of, yeah, that's not the same. Like the first operating system, right? Uh, if you are Paul Allen working with Bill Gates and you create like one of the first fundamental computing operating systems that's a big effing deal if you created the nth operating system that happened to have financial success okay that's cool but the innovation was with paul and bill and those that came before it right like we we miss the innovators the versus the true inventors who like go to physics and bring us that new thing like the transistor was like Tube to transistor was so fundamental. I mean, you remember, do you remember like Fairchild Semiconductor? Of course. I wasn't even born. <laughs> I mean, if you go, it's it's that that um that movie hall uh, the series Halt and Catch Fire, mm -hmm. right? Where these guys were like nerds who came from Texas instruments. Yeah. 
fantastic show for for any if we're if, if we're going to use this part of our discussion on the podcast as we're waiting for our guest halt and catch fire is one of my viral recommended anybody that likes this but it's look, like but, silicon valley it's you can't not watch it it's better yeah it's it's actually you know for people that like what we do but here's well, the, i think here's it's question. better it's better because silicon valley has overstayed its welcome well silicon valley's farce and it's great but halt and catch fire is actually this strange blending of truth and fiction uh, that synthesizes in a way that this is kind of what it probably was like. Um, and it's, it's, it's quite a good show. Um, you know, I had the cognitive weirdness of watching both shows as I was building Magic Leap. Like, <laughs> I was living Silicon Valley episodes and I had the very meta world thing where I sure. met the writers from Silicon Valley at conferences and the people who were show running that show who were hanging around the tech conferences looking for stories. It was like, yeah really weird and of course tech conferences then were were very weird they were like comdex where you know it would be in like one little hotel in las vegas and the things that were happening were these parties and suites where salesmen would just go and get super drunk yeah the show represents that really really well very accurately and very very thoughtfully by the way here's the, here's the question for you guys as you're talking about you know binary compute right the on off switch that runs the world um you, we all know we're on the cusp of when it turns from an on-off switch to a on-off and other switch, which largely we call quantum computing. And the question is, are we getting ready to see five or six of those extraordinary individuals that will drive the next generation of compute um, into shocking and unbelievable areas as we sort of reach the the end of binary? You know, all we're doing right now is just scaling binary, and that's what. Uh, AI is doing is using binary compute and graphic computes engines, which are basically just a bunch of on-off switches um, to its nth degree. So the next question is when we get to on-off or somewhere in the middle, uh, do you guys, I mean, Roni, you must have some thoughts on this. I I'm, I'm, I am working on some things in, in my stealth thing. On it. <laughs> Maybe uh, you're that this guy, is, uh, I have a plan to end the Vietnam War too. Maybe you're that guy, Roni. Well, let, 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 let's say this. Let's say this about it. I think, I think what that means is a movement back to the natural physics of how the universe works. And if you think about our version of computing, it was our first approximation of intelligence we find in the world, right? And we made it binary. Now we realize intelligence is much more this gradient and, and it has this like ambiguity. Um, it's not black or white it's not sun or moon only all the shades in between and all those fine analog things like all my friends in ai they're all basically believers that analog computing analog ai is the 2030s and 40s and 50s uh, and that we're able to do things just at a whole nother remarkable level of speed and just way to work and we're trying to jam so many problem sets into the binary ones and zeros of like the current you know, way of machine intelligence, but it will give way to um, like much more efficient analog. So pure computer. signal. Yeah. Yeah. And by, by this very interesting thing, right? It's actually going away from the transistor back into the tube, mm -hmm. but in a new thing, right? Whatever that thing is called is going to be this weird breakthrough, you know? Well, we've got, as promised, Albie Galudin, legendary uh, music executive, producer, uh, musician. Uh, he was responsible. We can blame him for the disco boom in the 70s and uh, music sampling. And I guess now you're working uh, on uh, some issues around AI and uh, copyright. And, uh, you know, we're going to nerd out on your background first, if that's okay. Uh, and then we'll that's segue fine. into what's on your mind. But thank you right. for coming on the show. I can tell you my co-hosts who are no shrinking violets and are famous in their own right, uh, absolutely swooned when I told them you were the guest today. So thank you for uh, making <laughs> us look good. Well, I'm embarrassed because you guys are certain none of you are slackers at all. <laughs> we are very impressed with what you've accomplished when when things move from using a technology to becoming a, a, a multiple cultural moments over many, many decades, uh, that has crossed the Rubicon for people like us. We are incredibly impressed by that level of creativity and aplomb. And uh, maybe, uh, Charlie, you want to do a quick walkthrough of some of his credentials and what he has brought to the world? Uh, sure, if I might embarrass you going to the Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> uh, Albies had been responsible for 13 number one singles 
uh, including uh, you should be dancing by the Bee Gees uh, and uh, and uh, Barbara Streisand and Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton and Eric Clapton. This is like a who's who. Uh, Olivia Newton-John, Diane Warwalk, Diane Ross, uh, just an amazing amount of music that really has, um, you know, Thank affected. you got for one sec, Charlie. Yeah. Dwayne Allman. I'll be working. <laughs> I read all about you that you work with Dwayne and that's like one of my favorite guitar players of all time. That's just amazing. Well, so, so let me tell you my, my favorite high note with Dwayne Allman. When we were Please. doing Allman Brothers records, my the person who hired me, my mentor was Tom Dowd, who produced the Allman Brothers records. <clears throat> and, and cream, right? And cream and, and cream and Aretha Franklin and lots and lots, you know, uh, wow. Lots of people. He was like, he was brilliant. So we're in the we're Dwayne, not worthy moment right now. <laughs> Dwayne would sit out on the couch and just sort of play slide guitar. He'd play like a dobro, and uh, he would hang out and play all the time. And so I had this idea that you could, when you're playing slide, you could press behind the bar and make chords out of it. And so you could make chords other than just the bar. So you press the note behind the bar would go down, then the note would play while the bar would make all the other notes ring and i showed it to, to Dwayne, and Dwayne went into the session and stood up in front of the band and said hey guys look at this cool thing albie just showed me doesn't get any better than that no it does not no it does not that's awesome. and an iconic form of music that has resonated through our ears like all of those things that charlie's talking about these are way more than just songs. These are, you know, cultural moments that have lived through eras. And these are the things that our kids and our grandkids are popping around on whatever audio streaming thing they're using. And, oh, I really like that. That's great. They're listening to that, you know, kind of thing. Um, so it's impressive. It's great. Thank you. God forbid you have very lucky. Dwayne album. If you were a listener who's not heard Dwayne album, please just get on Spotify, go buy the vinyl, get on Apple Music. Go open Almond Brothers. Listen to everything. Do that right now. Stop but, whatever you're doing. But I, Leave you know, I don't want to limit. Listen, I, I don't want to limit Albie's accomplishments to the '70s and the '80s. Uh, we met Albie. I'm sure you don't remember. Uh, for a hot minute, I was in charge of AOL Music, and so we had a ah. meeting over in the Black Tower, uh, and. Um, Obviously, it was not with you, but it was with the executives who were responsible for dealing with AOL. And right. <laughs> but they were always through the entire meeting saying, like, reverentially, you know, Albie said he would stop by. You know, Albie wanted to meet you guys, <laughs> and they were just so reverential. And of course, you did stop by, um, but you stopped by, which is why uh, I don't expect you to remember it. But even then, in the nineties. Uh, people were regarding you as uh, one of the senior people in the music industry and uh, somebody who's had a tremendous amount of influence. So I'm interested in asking you about that moment because that was sort of right before, like AOL was kind of right before the iPod showed up. And it was right. right right before, you know, groups like Beastie Boys broke in and brought rap music to the white world. And right. uh, people were sampling, which had to be a huge legal issue. So can you describe for us like that moment as a universal executive and and, you know, how you view it now in retrospect? I, I mean, I think that it was a very exciting time. <clears throat> I had. A great team at Universal. I mean, I love this. This Doug Morris quote when responding to Steve Jobs saying, we didn't have anybody who understood technology. Um, and our team was Chris Horton with a master's in uh, computer science from MIT who studied AI under uh, Marvin Minsky. Um, <laughs> um, Joe Cates, Caltech PhD, uh, Harold Soroka, who wrote the ADPCM codec for Philips. Um, Dimitri Radbell, who designed the uh, direct TV satellite system. So the, we certainly had great people. And it was so much fun to see all this stuff coming out. And we'd sit on the whiteboard and we would think about ideas and uh, file patents and talk to technology companies who said they had good ideas. And most of them didn't. It was just an incredibly exciting and fun time. Yeah. And then and then, of course, at that moment, we started to deal with uh, sampling, which feels a little like kind of the issues that have gone up around AI. Um, can you compare them? Yeah. So it's very I was making that comparison just the other day. It is so um, when we started sampling, you would sample things without permission. 
So there's, you know, there was the 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 uh, John Bonham drums from when the levee breaks. There's this, anytime there was a bar in the clear, people would sample it. And um, of course, no one had permission. And then gradually we learned how to recognize samples and how to get permission for them and to pay royalties for the use of samples. And some of the most creative samples were ones that you made yourself. I mean, I had a wine glass that I hit with my thumb. It was incredible <laughs> that we used on lots of things. Um, and so the analogy to AI is there are some companies who are doing uh, building AI on permissioned music. They hire musicians to create things and they they build models based on stuff that's permissioned. And of course, the big question for the music industry as well, you know, we think they think at least, and I, I'm sort of, I'm in the middle on all of these things. Um, it should be opt in and not opt out that you should have explicit permission to train your model on my records. Not, uh, not, you know, it's up to me to find out that you're doing it and then call you up and say, please remove me from the model. The, uh, I guess, uh, we are now able to tag media that we put online for, you know, don't, don't, uh, crawl this or use it in your model. Uh, so that's already kind of happening. But uh, Universal and a bunch of uh, music companies have uh, sued, um, uh, I guess, OpenAI because they could prompt it to deliver uh, right. lyrics that violated people's copyrights. Well, what was interesting is they didn't say, give me the lyrics to American Pie. They said, uh, write a song about <laughs> right. the death of, of Billy of uh, Buddy Holly. And so it, it, um, on its own, it says, Oh, I can, I mean, the, the main, <laughs> I know a great song about Buddy Holly. <laughs> yeah. Here, and I it, wrote it and I wrote it. <laughs> yes. And I wrote it and claim that you wrote it. So, I mean, there is a lot of, um, AI is, does not, it's not pretty good at being accountable. It doesn't necessarily say, Hey, here's where I got this from. And so, Besides the opt-in, opt-out piece, they would it would be nice if they were um, uh, if they were accountable. I mean, I have asked engineers at Google as long as six years ago, um, "What are you guys doing for forensic analysis of your AI? Are you how do how do you determine how it made the decision?" They go, "Well, I, well we're working on that." It's always <laughs> the message. But it's, Albie, can I ask you a tough question? Because um, sure. I, I sympathize and lean. I, 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 I'm, I'm a musician. I have a studio on the back. I, I do completely sympathize with it. But here's an AI question for you, an AI music question. Let's say I'm Eric Clapton, and I've listened to hundreds of blues records, Howling Wolf, Robert Johnson, all that. And I've learned all of that that they've done, right? So he is a machine learning, biologic machine learning system that learns. Absolutely. Blues, learn, and then he writes songs, speeds them up a little bit. But if... Did he get permissions? And this was the whole fight, right, between the older blues guys and, and the British rockers who co-opted a lot of blues. Did he get permission from Howling Wolf and Robert Johnson and all of them to use their music? Now, he could argue, and I think argue successfully, he also transmuted that into something new a lot of the times. But you can also argue Jimmy Page learned all those riffs and modified them, but I could argue that the most sophisticated AIs are doing something really simpler. They are transmuting all of that background knowledge that you learn as a Clapton listening to the blues records into something new. How do we deal with that problem? Well, so I would say that it's a continuum and it's going to be impossible to draw the line. So I would sit with Barry Gibb when he was looking for an idea to write a song and he would go through a fake book and find some lyric that he said, oh, this is interesting. And it would trigger or, you know, a book that triggered the title Islands in the Stream. No one would claim that he copied Hemingway to write the <laughs> Penny Rogers Dolly Parton song. So we have always been training as humans. The thing that's different about humans is we take another leap and we go one other step creatively. So no matter how much, no matter how well trained your AI was in 1961, it would have never come up with the Beatles. So. I, I, I like, I am optimistic that what AI mostly becomes is a tool. And you do have to have a means to determine whether or not it is actually um, doing something original. So when it's, I mean, I suppose 
saying this is an original song when it's actually a steal of American Pie is, uh, is it a hallucination? I mean, there is an issue where AI doesn't see it's it learned from some of our politicians that the truth is kind of uh whatever optional. you say it is <laughs> but what if it makes that leap like 2030 a beatles emerges and creates music that clearly had the same influences they had but creates a new form of music like jazz was a new form or, or blues came out of other like what if that happened with ai would we be okay i, with I would that? uh i think we would have to be i said for me that well let me digress for a second. I was very impressed with the whole Google Go Master thing that the Go Masters, when they looked at the game, said, wow, they thought of things that I had never thought of before, moves we've never seen. That's the definition of creativity. So I don't doubt that AI can be creative. For me, the big question is what are our goals as humanity? So us, let's assume, so I mean, robots will get better. Robots will be able to smell, see, hear, taste much more accurately than humans, run faster, see in the dark, do anything and can act as humanoid as you want. At some point in 20 years, we will, you know. So when AI has agency, the thing you have to look out for is unintended consequences, whether it's a hallucination or just not things you didn't think of. Like if, imagine asking an AI, say, uh, we need to make the American economy stronger than the Chinese economy. And its decision is to create a bio uh, weapon that destroys the Chinese rice crop. That's not what we intended. And so AI doesn't seem to have ethics or understanding. And it is a, incredible as a tool. In the music space, there are lots of tools. I mean, um, I, I'm on the board of a company that does sync licensing. And you can look at all these thousands and thousands and thousands of songs and a, and a uh, someone who's looking for a song to license for sync will say, I want something that sounds like the bridge of Start Me Up by the Rolling Stones. And I put in 20 seconds and it'll find you 50 songs that have that same tone and that same feel that are legitimate. They were written by humans. It's just who you would never find. And so I think that... Um, as a tool, it's unbelievable. But in terms of governance, it, it is the governance was not built in from the beginning. There was no thought about it. And you know, techno technology companies, I love them, but they are. I, I, let me pull the shade down because the sun is hmm. probably making me harder to see. We have to bring um, Albie back. Um, I know. I still we still haven't even talked about InterTrust. Uh, well, well, yes. Uh, uh yeah wherever we just were that, that's where we were i can jump on any topic you want to jump on well i i want to give you an opportunity to talk about uh intertrust and your current work with um uh ai as you were discussing it right so um intertrust are like the leaders in trusted computing where the people who invented digital rights management which people used if you remember that in the 90s and the early aughts people were like Digital rights management is the devil. It's going to make me not able to hear my stuff or see my stuff. Whereas now it's like water. You can't watch a movie or hear a right. song without DRM happening in the background. It just doesn't get in the way. Uh, last year, we issued over 20 billion DRM licenses. So that's our old business. Um, now we're sort of more generally in the trusted computer space. So we provide trust for everyone, you know, for IoT for uh, power companies. Um, you can have virtual power plants if you have multiple power providers. You can have wind farms made of lots of people who don't trust each other. And we manage all of that stuff. I'm doing uh, a bunch of stuff, interestingly, in the much uh, um, maligned NFT space because uh, NFTs are, I know there was a bubble, there was a tech bubble you know, 20 years ago. And there was a tulip bubble a few hundred years ago. And my grandchildren will go, you mean you used to have your driver's license in your wallet and your car registration in your glove box and your home <laughs> deed in a file drawer? That's going to sound archaic. That's what an NFT is. You have things that are fungible, like dollar bills or corn futures or whatever. And you have things that are not fungible. And the idea of collectibles and non-fungible things uh, happening 
it's just a natural progression. And so we provide the underlying technology for all sorts of non-fungible things. Um, So we're doing, uh, and we're also binding them with uh, physical objects like um, uh, there's a guy named Jesse Rademacher who was the lead designer at Adidas who now can print shoes um, almost as inexpensively as you can make them on the assembly line. And so we are putting NFC chips, you know, those uh, touch to pay chips in the shoes so that you can authenticate that they're the real shoe. And if you remove the chip, it's invalid. So then the shoe is, you can't resell it. And you have a virtual shoe in the metaverse that you can have. So you own a virtual shoe. We're doing the same thing for vinyl discs. You put an NFC chip on the disc. You can listen to the music on a, on a service because you can download it because you have the right in the digital space, but in the in the sort of the meat space or the IRL, as, as my kids would say, is you have authentication. So I'll, I'll ask a different question in a different vein because I'm listening, absorbing. This is all fascinating to me. I think your journey is really interesting of someone that at a period of your working life, your professional career, you were very much involved in the creative inspiration of driving creativity forward. And then you moved into sort of the, the business side of this. And now you're sort of at the protection side of rights management at scale. So you've kind of had multiple acts in in your life that all sort of started from that creative inspiration moment how how would you describe when you made those choices to move into different sectors of what you thought would give you joy and and interest because some people like us our joy factor is really strong we we look for (laughs) absolutely if you're not having fun doing something yeah you should change things and if you're fortunate enough to be successful in the first thing you're doing then when you change, you don't have to start at the bottom. So when I was making <laughs> records, when, when we were, I was standing on the floor with musicians and we were coming up with head arrangements or I was standing in front of an orchestra conducting the, you know, the overdubs on the songs. It was, that was absolutely fantastic. Sitting in the room with somebody when they're writing a song um, was amazing. When it got to where they were um, hiring me to turn threes into sevens instead of nines into tens, it was just not as much fun. It was also not as much fun doing it one at a time. When you're standing on the floor and everybody is playing at once, that's incredibly rich. When you are um, doing the drum track first or creating the loop as we did. I mean, the first time we made, made a loop, the first time that I, that I came up with the idea to create a drum loop, that we, we the drummer's father was ill in, uh, and he had to leave. And so we we took a bar out of Night Fever and we slowed it down and we turned that into the first drum loop for Staying Alive. That was exciting. We was, there was then the beginning of doing instruments one at a time. We started with the drums, we overdubbed the bass, the guitar, the vocals. But once that became the way everything was done, where you would just start with some sort of machine-made drum track and then you would add instruments one at a time, it just wasn't so much fun. It was just not as great. So I was producing a band um, in Sacramento and the band really needed a lot of sort of tutoring on how to play various kinds of things. And after about four hours, their head would explode. So, and I only sleep maybe six hours a night, four hours a night sometimes. So I had like 12 hours a day with nothing to do. So I bought a Mac, I think it was a Mac SI was what they were back then. This was, and, uh, uh, a program to teach myself to write C++. So then I went to a course by a guy named Dr. Ash Power when I was in LA, back in LA. So I now knew how to write bad C++, but I, I couldn't debug it. Um, and then I went to see this guy, Ash Power, who was talking about disk architectures. So how you uh, write things, well, yellow book, red book, white book, the various formats for CD-ROMs or audio CDs. And there was one called Photo CD that Kodak had developed where you could take it your your roll of film into a, 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 um, uh, a store and they would put it on a CD for you. And then mm. you could bring your next roll of film back with that same CD and they would add another session to the CD. It was called multi-session. So I had this epiphany that you could take an audio CD as the first session and then have a second session that would be multimedia. 
And every audio player in the world would read it just like an audio disc, but a computer could see the stuff. So I went to, uh, after I finished mixing a record on a Friday night, Monday morning, I read in, uh, I think, the Wall Street Journal about a company that had just been funded in Santa Monica named Ion. And I went down and I said, hey, I would like to do this thing. Here's my idea. We can create these things. We wanted to call them CD Plus, but Canal Plus wouldn't let us. So where you make CDs. And Ty said, well, why don't you come here and work? You can start right now, Ty Roberts. And we, uh, I went from mixing a record to working at ION, and we brought that to the record labels. And so it was a natural transition into technology. I'd always sort of liked technology, but music was in the 70s and in the 60s, in the 70s, music was so much more fun. It was, I mean, kids today don't know how, what a pleasure it is to play in a club six nights a night, four nights a week, and just play with your buddies. And so I'll say one more thing while I'm on this sort of uh, uh, rant or screed, if you will, um, <laughs> that I think the ideal intended consequence of, um, of AI and of uh, created music is that we will come to love even more human connection. That mm. people do not want to necessarily go someplace and see a hologram doing something that was created by a computer. They want it the Swifties like Taylor Swift. It's not just the music. And so in my dream, we end up in a world where every city has half a dozen or a dozen clubs where musicians play live and people go to have drinks and talk to each other and hear live musicians. That to me would be one of the finest outcomes we could get from AI. It pushes us back towards raw, real, live music, like the analog of, of that. Like we realize we're people. Well, the human connection, isn't that, you know, I mean, isn't that our goal is to have happier, more connected people? That's what human connection certainly is, is an indicator for long life. You live longer when you have more friends. Well, I think that, that it, it, I think the danger for us is those friendships have migrated to social media and when they were physical they had much more impact because you don't remember what you know you did in social media you remember what you did with people in person so of course so i think that experience of live as we become uh more virtual uh is going to have more and more of a premium but as as a musician you have to be with with other people i think um you get better yeah. when you're with other people sure. i mean I, I have my guitar next to my desk but i play the same thing over and over again i'm not really learning anything well, other than the chords for a particular song um yeah but it would be i would get i would be a better musician if i was laying down that rhythm for roni it, it, well, it's really really right? cool sorry uh, really quick to, to, what's really amazing about what Albie's saying is like Albie, i'm working on some crazy deep tech ai in my next startup, but I also had lingering in the back of my mind, wouldn't it be cool to build like an honest to goodness, great live music venue? Um, like Lee Von Helm, did you hear about his midnight rambles? I don't know if you ever uh, went to one of those. No, no, I, I, I'm a huge fan of Lee Von Helm, but I never went to one of his midnight rambles. If you, if the listeners don't know about it, um, Lee Von used to host in his barn, like up, like in the Northeast, you know, what great musicians come in and you'd get taken, and they would just like play all night. Exactly. What we're describing. I, I never got to go to it, but the, the mythology of that's so amazing, especially because leave on home. And it seems like they recreated the big pink every night there with just brilliant musicians. And like that, if, if, if what you're describing is something like that, that would be amazing. If every, that's, I mean, like that. jam sessions have been around forever, but they're really not around now. Nobody jams because there's nobody live to get up with. Yeah. So, and you started out as, this is, I guess, a parting shot here. Uh, Albie, you started out, you went to music school, and you started out as a musician and a composer. So mm -hmm. I always find it interesting, right? Because we, like I started out, I wanted to be a director, right? Everybody starts out wanting to be the primary artist when they come to Hollywood or to Los Angeles, as I did. And then you see this whole world and you find your place in it through a combination of your interests, your talent and rank opportunism. Uh, and that kind of determines your career path. That's been my career experience. And it seems like you had a similar 
starting place and and you know and that and then it it went to places you could not have predicted when you were an undergraduate but there's a tremendous tremendous amount of luck there was a cliche it's not true anymore but there was a cliche in the 60s and 70s if you graduated from berkeley that meant you weren't good enough to get a job that is <laughs> that is berkeley and boston the music school so the idea is you learned and i i i did about six semesters in a year and a half i just went to learn my craft. I found out that I wasn't as good as I should be, and I went to get better. And then I was lucky. I had you know musicians. I had I'd gone to Memphis when I was young because I loved R and B music, and I met musicians there. And when I called them to say I'm ready to break into the session, you know, and try to become a session musician, um, and my friend Jim Dickinson said, "Well, call me when you get here because I'll be in Miami working for Atlantic Records." They went to Atlantic, became the house rhythm section. I went there, I hung out with them, I rolled up joints on the floor, I kept my <laughs> mouth shut and my ears open until I thought of the right thing. I got on a date here or there, and then ultimately Tommy Dowd hired me. And so, But I was very lucky. Well, I, I hope all of our listeners have the same kind of luck and the, are able to make the same kind of incredible contributions that you have. Really appreciate you taking the time this morning to share your incredible knowledge and, and some anecdotes from your storied career. So, uh, and it's great Thank seeing you. you again, Albie. Um, you know, you're. Um, well, let's not wait so long for the next time. Okay, you got it. Uh, have a great weekend, everybody, and thank Thanks. you for listening. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.